Thank you, Kara, so much for blessing our church with that. It is so cool to see you use your gift, the memory that God's given you, the eloquence that God's given you. So thank you so much for, for serving our body with that. Hopefully by now you have your Bible open and you were following along in, um, in where Kara was going. We're gonna be looking at, at Philippians 1.27 through about 2.13 this morning. And what I would love to do in the beginning part of this chapter is just kind of pick up where Chris left off last week. I loved what Chris did last week as he took us through the majority of chapter one and pointed out how Paul over and over can keep showing us that, that even if your plans get messed up, it can still advance the mission. Even if people are serving with wrong motives, it can advance the mission. Even if you don't get what you want, or even if you suffer, it can still advance the mission. And the way I'd like to continue our conversation this morning is by talking about, okay, well, then what does it mean to advance the mission? Or more particularly, particularly what is the mission that we are meant to advance? And how do we go about doing it? And I think that Paul begins to answer that question for us in chapter 1, verse 27. Take a look at this one. I'm going to put a few slides up that you can see as well. But in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, here's what Paul says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The mission of the church centers on the gospel of Christ. It's why we exist. It's why we're here. This amazing story that the Bible contains of good news that in spite of humanity's rebellion against God, our desire to take the lives and the minds and the bodies and the world that God made and use it for our own purposes and all of the corruption and evil and suffering and death that has come from it, our God, our creator God, sent his own son as a human in order to live and serve and suffer and die for us in our place. And then ultimately to rise victorious three days later so that everyone who believes in him, whether from any tribe or tongue or language or nation or skin color or socioeconomic class or wherever, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven and made new and adopted as sons and daughters of God for all forever. And ultimately this gospel is not only just about human salvation, but the renewal of all of heaven and earth to be the place where we will dwell with God forever. That gospel is why the church exists. That is our mission, to bring that message to every nation, every individual, until Jesus comes back and makes all things new. I love what Chris did last week of reminding us of our purpose statement, our mission statement as a church. And I wanted you to take a look at that with me as well. That our mission as a church is to give every individual an accurate picture of God by helping those who believe become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's the same thing that Paul said in 127, that our manner of life ought to be worthy of the gospel. But I want you to pay attention to those last, those two words in the second phrase of our mission statement. Those who believe becoming fully devoted followers, believing and following. I think those two ideas are key for where I'd like us to go this morning. Yes, the gospel is a message that we believe and communicate to others. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is also the pattern for our lives. Our manner of life, the way we conduct ourselves, is to fit in line with the gospel. 
We are called not only to have faith in Jesus as our master, but to follow Jesus as our model. It's the way that Paul talks about it in Philippians 1.21, that famous phrase that many of us are familiar with, where he says that to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When he says to live is Christ, he does not only mean living for Christ, wanting to serve Jesus with his life, but also living like Christ, modeling his conduct after the example of Jesus. And we need to focus there because I do think that for all of us, this concept of Christ-likeness, this idea of pursuing, modeling Jesus in our conduct, it can slip down our priority list if we're not careful. We can think that we can maintain a belief in Jesus, but then model our action, our conduct, our relationships, our engagement on social media much more like the world around us than like Jesus. And that's why Paul says in 127, let y'all's manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Live in the manner of your life like the one that you follow. As we'll see in chapter two, this, what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel especially shapes the way that we treat one another as a church, the way that we conduct ourselves together, and especially within the church, the way that we treat and care for those who are different from us. Let's look again at 127, and we'll see how this idea plays out. Take a look at this. I did a little Terryism in this passage because there's a lot of y'alls that in English we just say you. And it's one of the biggest drawbacks to the English language. So if you will, let's take a trip with Terry to the south and let's read this the way it's meant to be written. Only let y'all's manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see y'all or I'm absent, I may hear of y'all that y'all are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Continue in verse, chapter two, verses one and two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then y'all complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, full agreement, and of one mind. In all these repeated ideas of same spirit, same love, same mind, it's pretty clear that to live in a manner worthy of the gospel means being united in spirit and in purpose, being like-minded. Now, let's stop and think for a second, because that concept of, of being like-minded, of being on the same page with others, that's a pretty familiar concept to us. But what does it mean to be like-minded for the gospel? for the sake of the gospel. I think this is where we have to think a little bit because I, to be honest, in my life and as I look at those around me, if I can speak on behalf of us as a church, often when we think about what it means to be like-minded with other people, I think we put the cart before the horse. I think we get the second thing, uh, we get it backwards. We take whatever's already on our mind and then we look for people who have the same thing on their mind and then we say, okay, cool, let's, let's do what we were already doing, but do it together. We look for people who already think and talk and act the way that we think and talk and act, who already care about the issues that we care about and care about them in the same way. Who, when they post things on social media, we go, yes, absolutely, I wanna share it. Who vote the way that we do. 
who have kids our kids' ages and choose to school them the same that we do, who are into the same hobbies or like to take vacation the same way, who even feel the same way about social distancing guidelines and face mask rules. Now, stop for a second, because I do think that this sense of, okay, you think about the same things that I do, let's think about them together, there can be something good about that. There can be a true camaraderie around having shared interests of seeing things the same way. But I would say this, particularly in the church, in our relationships together, when we start with what's already on our mind and then look for people who already have the same things on their minds too, I think this is actually what sows seeds of division within the church. As we all just seek what we're already interested in with the people who share the same interests. And then if someone doesn't share our interests, well, it can be kind of hard to find them very interesting. Can't it? I don't think that that's what Paul had in mind. I don't think that when Paul says that as believers to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, we need to be like-minded, that he meant it in a sort of fill-in-the-blank, put-whatever-you-want-in-that-box kind of way. I think we have to keep reading because I think Paul spells out for us exactly what he means about being like-minded. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This, my friends, this is what Paul calls us to be like-minded about. To collectively, as a church, reject selfish ambition and conceit. This idea of selfish ambition, it's, it's actually the exact same word that's translated rivalry, Back in chapter 1, verse 15, when Paul talks about how he's in prison and some people preach Christ out of rivalry, there he says he rejoices because one way or another, Christ is still being preached. But lest we leave chapter 1 thinking that our motivations don't matter, here he says, if you've been preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, out of a desire to make a name for yourself and get ahead and build status for yourself, you need to stop doing it. That must not be our motivation in living in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's the same point in the second word that he says of of, of rejecting conceit, doing nothing out of conceit. The word literally means empty glory. It looks good, but there's no substance to us. It's what many in the Philippian culture, and I would say in our culture, go after. It's it's, it's glory and recognition that comes through self-promotion. That comes from getting your name out there, for, from, from creating buzz around your personal brand or whatever way you, cheesy way we talk about it. It's, it's seeking from others recognition for ourselves. Often in ways that are all about the way that we present ourselves publicly or we present ourselves on social media. We may not have any character to back up the beautiful image that we portray to the world. As long as people don't see past the facade, we feel good. That's empty glory. That's not what we are to pursue. What Paul says is instead of seeking that empty recognition from others, trying to build our own significance, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It's the exact opposite of self-promotion. This is intentional self-lowering. The word humility, here's what was fascinating as I studied this. This word that's translated humility here it is, in, in the rest of like Greco-Roman literature, it is never used in a positive sense. It is always a negative term. 
As a matter of fact, often even an insult, a way to put someone down, a way to identify those that are seen as inferior, as the lower class, as those who exist to serve the interests of those who are seen as more important or better than them. In short, this humility that Paul calls us to be like-minded about was not in any way seen by Greek people or Roman people as desirable. Nothing that you would want to have happen to you, and definitely not anything that you would intentionally seek to do to yourself. But that's exactly what Paul calls us to here. You see, because while the Greeks and the Romans had no positive context for humility, Jewish people did. As they read through the Old Testament, they saw throughout the Proverbs and the Psalms and even the prophets that humility, which doesn't gain any recognition from people, is actually precious in God's sight. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Listen to the, the contrast between how God presents himself and then he says, this is the one that I love. This is the one I look to. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly or humble spirit. That's what Paul's drawing on here. What is seen as inferior or undesirable to people is precious in the eyes of God. Conducting yourself with humility, thinking of others as more significant than yourselves will rarely earn you recognition from people. But it catches God's eye every single time. The question is, whose recognition are you seeking? You see, because here's the interesting thing. In Philippians 2, humility is presented as not just the way that we present ourselves to God, but also the posture of our heart in relation to each other. Look again at verses three and four. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his, his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a, probably a better way to translate it, because it's funny, the way that this reads right here is it sounds almost more like a, like a generic, as each of us as individuals just treat generic other people this way. Let me show you a little bit more accurate translation of what this verse is talking about. Take a look at this. Rather than just treating others, what he says is, in humility, count one another as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of each other. These are not generic commands for how we as individuals treat just other people out there. These are one another commands, speaking specifically to the way that we, as followers of Jesus, as a spiritual family, are to care and consider one another. These are church commands. Not it doesn't shape the way that we interact with our neighbors. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. But don't miss the fact that the church is meant to be the place, the city on the hill, the place where people can look and see, wow, they will know us by our love. That's what Paul is calling it. That's what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Not, do you already care about the stuff that I care about? Well, then cool, we can do it together. The like-mindedness of the gospel is a like-mindedness that says, I will care about you and you will care about me before and above whatever other stuff we care about. We will be like-minded about humility 
We will be like-minded about considering one another and giving greater significance to each other than to me. We will be like-minded about looking out for each other's interests, not just ourselves, and not just if you're like me and your interests intersect with mine, but especially if you're different from me and you view things differently than me. I will still care about you in humility, see you as more significant than me. That's what it means to be like-minded for the gospel. Sometimes in the church, maybe more my background has been that we want to pursue like-mindedness around shared doctrine and theology, viewing the truths of Scripture the same way. And, and I will say to you, that is important. There are certain truths, like, like the deity of Christ, like the reality of his resurrection, that if you don't believe those, you cannot rightly call yourself a Christian. You can't have like-mindedness around the gospel when the gospel is not a part of it. But you know what this passage has reminded me of repeatedly as I've been preparing for this? Doctrine matters, and unity and humility are doctrinal matters. Humility is a theological truth, not just an issue of my ethics or my morality. Humility is what we are called to be like-minded about. And we were talking about this in our sermon prep meeting, and Kristen Nave made this great point where she said that it's not only that we are to be like-minded about humility, but humility is actually what enables us to be like-minded, what actually enables us to have unity, that you cannot have unity apart from humility. It's, it's the secret sauce that makes it all happen. And Paul says not only that, but this like-mindedness of in humility considering one another as more significant is the calling card of the church. It is the way that we are to be known in the world. Because that is the same mindset, the same manner of life that Jesus Christ modeled for us himself. Look at verse 5. This is beautiful. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or more literally, which is the same as Christ Jesus' mindset, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wish we could spend so much more time right here in this passage. One commentator said that this right here, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is the most commented on passage in the New Testament. It is glorious. It is beautiful. There is so much doctrine to unpack here about the eternal existence of Jesus, about his deity, his, his equality with God the Father, about his incarnation, his taking on flesh, humanity, even to the point of obedience to death on the cross, about how after his death and resurrection, the Father exalted him again to the highest place where he will be universally recognized as King and Lord by every creature. Man, this is a beautiful, majestic passage. There's a reason why it has captivated the hearts and minds of Christians for 2,000 years. And I would say to you that this passage is one of those ones that I think every believer should try to know by heart if for no other reason that you can then spend a lot more time reflecting on it than we can this morning. 
But what I want you to see from this grand, glorious, beautiful picture of Jesus is that it's a part of Paul's whole discussion about what it means for us to be like-minded like Christ. To not just have faith in Jesus as our savior, as our master, but also to follow him as our model, our example. To willingly choose humility and sacrificial service toward each other. Now let's, let's pause here. Let's move slowly through this next part because I really think we need to focus our attention for a moment. I believe that this call to, in humility, consider others as more significant than ourselves, to adopt the mindset of Jesus, of sacrificial servant love, I believe that it applies to all believers everywhere in the way that we treat each other. But I don't think that necessarily means that it will apply to everyone in exactly the same way. Let me explain what I mean. Within the church in Philippi, you would have had an assortment of people from different classes of society. Some who were upper class, rich, owners, masters. Some who were lower class, some who were even the slaves, the servants of those who were rich, who were masters. In other words, within the church of Philippi, just like in the society of Philippi, there were some people who were already seen as more significant and others who were seen as less significant. To put it in contemporary language, we might say that in that church, just as in our society, some lives were recognized to matter more than others, while other lives were viewed as less valuable or less desirable. And those who were lower were often expected to serve the interests of their superiors, their betters. And in that society, here comes Paul with this letter in which he writes to each and every one of them, regardless of their status, their class, their position, their influence, whatever it was. And he says, all y'all need to turn from empty glory and self-promotion. And even the upper crusty elites need to, in humility, consider even the slaves within their midst as more significant than themselves. And not only seek their own interests, but seek the interests of those who were seen as lower. The more significant ones were not just supposed to enjoy the benefits of their significance, their privileges, their power. They were called, just like Jesus, to leverage their positions, their power, their entire manner of life. To show greater significance to those who were seen by society and often by them as less significant, less desirable. Because that's what Jesus, the most significant one, had done for them. This is as radical a call in our day as it was when Paul wrote it to the Philippians in the first century. I believe it gets to the heart of so much of the tension we see in our society, whether it's regarding someone's ethnic or racial background. Regardless of whether it's about gender discrepancies or just the differences in socioeconomic status, I think Paul is saying, this is your role, church. This is what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. As Christians, Philippians 2 is a call to us to adopt a totally different grid by which we view our lives and the lives of those around us. That we cannot, as followers of Jesus, just adopt the same evaluative tools, the same vision of what is true or good or beautiful, 
that the world around us has in determining which lives matter more than other, which jobs or professions or classes are more worthy of protection and celebration and service. Understand this. The mission of the church, if there's been any confusion in your mind, let me try to clear this up right now. The mission of the church, regardless of generation, regardless of country or nation that the church was situated in, the mission of the church has never been to maintain and protect the status quo of that society. Especially when that status quo worked really well for some within the church and was actually oppressive to others within the church. The way of Jesus, the model of the lifestyle of Jesus has never been about seeking our own comfort and especially not when it was at the expense of the comfort of others. Please understand me. Some of you may have, you may have already turned off the TV. I don't know. What I've noticed is that in our current setting, being separated, being distant from one another, it is so easy in our self-centered like-mindedness to get in our echo chambers and never even give a thought to somebody else's viewpoint. And I would just say to you, I am not seeking to make a political statement. I'm seeking to communicate to you what I wholeheartedly believe this passage is saying not only to us, but every generation of Christians. The church exists not to maintain the status quo and not just to overthrow it for our own benefit. The church exists for one reason, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to believe and communicate and model our lives after the life of Jesus. We are called to recalibrate our sense of who and what matters according to the example of Jesus, who had the highest position, who had the greatest power, the most privileged position in the universe as the son of God, but he didn't use it to seek his own advantage. That's the best way to understand what Paul is saying there in verse six when he says that Jesus did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, that word grasped, probably the best way to understand it is leveraged or used for his own benefit, for his own advantage. Jesus did not just go, I'm the son of God, I'm gonna use this for myself. Instead, he leveraged his deity, his unique place as the son at the right hand of the father. He leveraged it not for his own benefit, but for ours. Not just for our advantage, but ultimately for our salvation. And in so doing, Jesus Christ has revealed to us what God is really like, what he is really like, clearer than ever before. I came across this beautiful quote from Gordon Fee in his commentary on Philippians. I'd love to share this with you. He says this, in Jesus Christ, the true nature of the living God has been revealed ultimately and finally. God is not a grasping, self-centered being. He is most truly known through the one whose equality with God found expression in his pouring himself out in sacrificial love by taking the lowest place, the role of a slave, and whose love for his human creatures found consummate expression in his death on a cross. That's the love of God. Back at Christmas time, when we talked about 1 Corinthians 13, we talked about this others focused, honor giving love of the Trinity, that each member of the Trinity is not focused on their own honor, their own glory, but bestowing that honor and praise and love on one another. That's what God has invited us into, not only by creating us, but by redeeming us in Christ. 
So live in a manner worthy of that glorious, self-giving, sacrificial love. That's what we're called to. Not just so that we can enjoy that love ourselves, but so that we can display to our world that this really is what can change the world. The sacrificial love of Jesus Christ uniquely from him, bearing our sins as the unique son of God, but modeled by us in our love for one another. It is the true force that can bring peace and justice and reconciliation into our world. That's why living in a manner worthy of the gospel is so important. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but, now, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's take a moment to talk about this before we wrap things up because this passage has sent some people in a tailspin thinking that somehow Paul is contradicting himself. When he says, work out your salvation, is he contradicting what he says so eloquently in his other writings? that we are not saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith. Is he now saying we have to work for this? Don't have time to unpack it fully, but let me just say to you this. Paul is not calling us to work for our salvation, but what he's saying fits perfectly in everything he's been saying in this passage. If you have been saved, if you have experienced salvation through the sacrificial servant love of Jesus Christ, then work out that salvation by sacrificially serving and loving those around you particularly your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not that we bear each other's sins like Jesus did. He is unique in that way. But as we love one another sacrificially with a heart of humility, we demonstrate that we truly have experienced the love of God. And he says, not only do we work this out, but God works in us both to will it, to desire it, and then to put it into practice. And so church, if God is at work in us, if he is giving us the desire and the ability to carry this out, let's go for this. Let's not just settle for what we've been able to do in sacrificial love so far. Let's press deeper. Let's press further. To close, what I'd love to do is just talk a little bit about what, what it looks like to move this conversation in a more practical realm. What can this practically look like in our lives? I'm gonna throw up a slide that's got some just application questions that I would, I would encourage you to think through, discuss in your community groups or with those in your home. These are the very things that are on my heart that I'm discussing and wrestling through. What should this look like in our lives? Take a look at these questions real quick. What influence, positions, resources, advantages, et cetera, might you have? Whether within our church, within society, within your family, within your profession, what, where, where are you in a position where things that you have are recognized as significant? And then the second question, what might it look like to leverage those things that God has entrusted to you, not for your own benefit, not for your own advantage, but to count others, and particularly your brothers and sisters in Christ, as more significant than yourself? The third question, who are those within our church that, are, that tend to be viewed as less desirable or less important? either, again, within our church or by our society or even by you. What would it look like to practically consider them as more significant than yourselves? And then lastly, 
Where do we need to repent from seeking a self-centered like-mindedness to an other-serving like-mindedness? Let's continue these discussions. And the next time that we continue in this passage, I'd love to, to move things further and look at more examples of people who, not only, who show us the same example of Jesus. But as I close, let me say this. Perhaps even as I look at those questions, they're discouraging to you because maybe you're in a situation where you look at it and you say, yeah, across the board, whether by society or even sometimes by believers at Cornerstone, I feel like I'm one who's seen as less valuable. I feel like I'm one who's seen as less significant. And what I would say to you is this. Don't just look to us. Don't just look to society for your significance. Look to Jesus. Look at the lengths that he has already gone to to show you sacrificial, servant-hearted love. To the point of even death shamefully on a cross. That shows you, you matter to him. You absolutely do. But don't just look at where Jesus is in the first part of that uh, that song. Look at verse nine real quick. After Jesus' obedience to the point of death on the cross, look where he went. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice in this passage, Jesus did not exalt himself. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And in response, his father lovingly glorified him and gave him that position, that name above every name, so that both now and especially in eternity, the day will come when every knee will bow before him. And even those who have rejected and continued an obstinate rebellion against him will have to acknowledge that he truly is God and King. Don't buy into the lie that you must fight or demand glory for yourself or for your group. Even if you got it from people, it would be fleeting and fading and it would never satisfy. But if you set your eyes on Jesus, if you model your life after him, the promise is that one day you will share in his glory and no one will ever be able to question it or belittle it or take it away. Look to Jesus. And then I would say, come join us. Not that we have ever done this perfectly or will do it perfectly, but I believe with all my heart that God is at work within us, both to will and to do, to to, to drive us toward in humility, considering one another's is more significant than ourselves. Let's grow this way, Cornerstone. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for the grace that you've shown us in your son. Jesus, thank you for your service to the point of death on the cross, that you in the highest position took the lowest position in order to show us grace and love and forgiveness. Would you remind us, those of us who believe in you as our master, that the call to faith in you is also the call to follow you as our example. Would you lead us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name, amen.